Welcome to Fox in the Box, a podcast from Komodo Fox band members Caio Donini and Philip Hasse, where we talk about bands we love and their influence on the music we make. It's time for episode number five about Queens of the Stone Age, their unique guitar sound, the impact of producers in their process and how hard it is for us to separate the art from the art. Yes, the time has come, the time has come, Philip, on this Sunday, still sitting apart from each other in Berlin because we are following, I don't know what we're following, just being very, very careful about coronavirus. Yeah, we are ca <laughs> careful people, probably yeah, the absolutely. most careful rock band existing on the whole planet. Yeah, we've been seeing each other, but not touching, mm. not smiling, right? Not smiling, yeah, that's the... <laughs> on top extra rule that we made up ah, I, th I don't know I think smiling might be dangerous smiling is overrated yeah is it? it is and talking about how much smiling is overrated we're gonna talk about a band which doesn't smile that much I don't know if they don't smile that much I'm just saying bullshit Queens of the Stone Age yes the amazing band of in this case again one people who is having a bit the lead I would say Josh Home. Yeah. Is it Home yeah. or Home? Home? I, Josh I don't know. Josh Home, I think. Josh Home, yeah. Amazing musician, yeah. Uh, interesting person. So we're going to talk about him in detail as well. So some basic facts for the beginning, I would say they are founded in the 19s, 90s, 19 Yeah, 96 apparently, right? 96, yeah, as a trio. If I'm right. In California. California. Yeah, you know what's interesting? I was reading their Wikipedia page, and especially Josh's page. And, well, he used to play in this band called Caius, which is one of the, like, seminal desert rock, stoner rock bands, apparently, in the US. And, well, after he left the band, apparently, he started this Queens of the Stone Age, but it didn't call it wasn't named Queens of the Stone Age right at the beginning. And what I was right baffled when I checked it was the the name of the band was Gamma Ray. And I was like, oh, I know a band which is called Gamma Ray, which it's a German uh, power metal band that I actually really like. So it's one of the first metal bands that I you know used to listen when I was a teenager. And what happened was that He started this band in, nine, in I think, 95 or something, called call it Gamma Ray. And then the German Gamma Ray said, sent a cease and desist and said, hey, dude, this name already exists. You don't have an option. And then he changed it to Queen of the Stone, Queens of the Stone Age. Interesting. Yeah. It was mind-blowing when I saw this. For people who are listening, probably it isn't. But to me personally, as a, a, f a power metal fan, it was very interesting to see this sort of overlap. <laughs> <laughs> nice oh, that's a cool fact yeah yeah they started the band they I think already from Caius they they had this very particular um, strange kind of dark sound 
And it seems that there was a main guy, a producer and musician called Chris Goss. Chris Goss, I think, is the pronunciation, who is one of the main responsible for kind of developing this stoner rock identity and sound. I'm not sure if you're interested particularly about producers, and I think we're going to have a moment later on. Part of the topic we talked today is about producers, right? Yeah, about Eric Valentine. Mm. Very nice producer. And he produced the famous album... The Red One of Queens of the Stone Age, which is called... Oh, man, I'm so bad with names. I'm so sorry for this. Songs, Songs for the for Death. The death. <laughs> yeah. Uh, famous album and uh, very unique sound, I would say. Also, mm. when it comes to sounds, um, I would describe that they have... Like, the sound of Queens of the Stone Age, I would describe very unique and very, um, very easy to recognize. I had that... That, like from the beginning on that they have this specific elements in their music like the guitars um, they have this MIDI sound I think that's what you also said as well and also the singing is very I don't know like this high high singing from time to time very significant significant and um, so very unique and at all I would actually say they have a dry sound that's what always comes to my mind when I listen to it and what I what I find interesting, that everything is very cleaned up. And Yeah, s- some people call it their genre as from alternative rock to desert rock to stoner rock, which I think is the the one that I like the most. Mm. Anytime I, I listen to someone saying, you know, I hear someone saying, yeah, stoner rock, I immediately think of Queens of the Stone Age. I think they're one of the biggest names i know that do that I, I'm, I'm sure there's a bunch of other bands that i don't want to go into stoner rock because i don't know much of the genre but um yeah and the that the guitar sound from josh home is very particular um and i think there comes a lot of influence from this early Caius experience and uh i think that somehow the desert and the, the desert area where he lives in has a lot of influence in the sound which I, I i think it's super nice like a a geographical the geographical influence on the music they're making and somehow i think they sound josh holmes specifically is kind of the evil elvis you know he has this vibe of kind of rockabilly early 50s 60s rock but kind of mean kind of evil i don't know if you have the same feeling but that's what i feel yeah i i think he's a very strong personality Oh. We talked about this before that I can also imagine it's he's not the easiest guy to work with. I can mm. imagine also when you see the list of band members uh, for Queens of the Stone Age, <laughs> how many people I think the first formation already like after two years it was already gone. It was just Josh left. Uh, yeah. um, so for me it's also still more like the solo project of Josh in a way. Although I would also say they're a band but... Um, I don't want to be mean or something, but with other bands, I have it much more that, like even with Muse, where we talked about it, I would definitely say you you say okay, Matthew Bellamy is is the brilliant core, of course, of the band because he's also the singer and plays a lot of instrument. But I would never think anyone else of the band's less important. I think they are very dependent from the soul mm-hmm. setting, and I think with Josh, I have more the feeling that this is his baby. Oh. Oh way, oh way, oh way! Um, that this is his baby, and it came from 
more from from his producer attitude also that he has a big impact in the band a bit like Dave Grohl in uh, in the Foo Fighters I would say this, I would so I would define his role like this I don't know how you see it no I think I I have the same impression as much as I you probably know Queens of the Stone Age more than I do because when we're talking about the albums I think I have two or three albums that I mainly know. It's funny because I always thought that you are the Queens of the Stone Age guy from us too. So I was already like super nervous sitting here, sweating, like <laughs> reading a lot of things about Josh and Queens because I thought, oh, this is the first band where I'm probably not as informed as you. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> funny. Oh, I know, I know a bit from uh, mainly from the Songs for the Deaf album, but my interest in Queens came from that album and from the fact that Dave Grohl was uh, was involved with it. And as I'm a Dave Grohl fanboy, I that's where my interest stems from. I know a little bit, but not too much. Like I'm not I wouldn't say I'm a you know a fanboy of Queens of the Stone Age in the sense that I know all of the all the details, all of the formations and all of that. No, not not well. Mm. But um I I would say so. I would say that Josh Holm is is the key guy and as much as the formation has been fairly stable in the recent years. So Troy van Leuven, this the guitarist, is has been already for ages in the band. Um I think John Theodore, the the drummer, has been there for a while. And also this Schumann guy, the bass player, whew, this is a sick bass player. They, they I mean it seems that this core formation has been going on for a while now. Mm. But um yeah, Josh is the guy. I mean, the, the main sound comes from him. And I think it's, I would say it's similar to Foo Fighters in a way. Similar, not the the same thing. So if you take this guy out of the band, it's completely gone. But uh, the other ones, they they tend to influence because I, I, there are one or two albums in which all of them have producer credits. Mm -hmm. So you do know that they, I mean, they obviously have a decision in the direction. But I tend to agree with you that it's sort of the project of Josh Roman. My first contact to Queens of the Stone Age was in 2006, I would say, when I was playing a lot of computer games and there was Need for Speed Underground 2 and they had in my head the song of Queens of the Stone Age in their playlist and it was actually also the time where I got into music, into really actively listening to music quite late, I would say, I think with around 14 years or so and... I think all those, like all the first bands that I was listening to, they came all from those racing games. And Queens of the Stone Age was one of them. And then I bought this black album. I think it's the one after after Thongs for the Deaf, or maybe two after that black one with yeah Lullaby, Lullabies to Paralyze from 2005. Uh -huh. um, and that was an album that I was also listening a lot to. It's very beautiful songs on there and very yeah um, that that is one of the albums i know the least and it seems to be the most successful commercially speaking from there mm. yeah from i think career. it's th there they go also a bit more poppy i would say they have yeah? uh, very oh. uh, not poppy but i would say it has some more catchy uh, more positive chords also in the way still they have this dark atmosphere but i don't know it has for me this album is more catchy than songs for the deaf um, I would, I think like what you told me that that they also come a bit from the darker side when we listen to the earlier 
albums I hear that more than in this um, lullabies to paralyze but I'm also not super into every album and song so I cannot say this for sure it's just an um, overall exp um, impression yeah one of the key things that attracts me to their sound and I would say that a bunch of our friends already expressed that they think Uh, that our music kind of sounds like Queens of the Stone Age, which I don't think it's the case, to be honest. Uh, also, not to sound arrogant at all, because then we're, we're barely know what we're doing here, and Queens of the Stone Age is just fantastic. Um, I think there there is some influence. I don't know exactly where, but I would say that the guitar sound inspires me a lot. And I come from uh, a guitar, let's say, admiration. My The style of guitar I always liked was more sort of... Brian May, um, Brian May, I think it's my main guitar hero, but there is a bit of those shredders, those metal shredders, so a lot of kind of powered mids, mid frequencies, a bit more standing there, and maybe high frequencies as well. And then what Josh Homer's guitar sound is like, I guess it's very mid-sounding, very, but very particular. Sometimes it sounds crappy, but it's a nice crappy, you know? And this is this sort of sound that I've been trying to, not, not to replicate, but there's, you know, a lot of this in what I've been trying with my guitar sounds lately. Yeah, I would definitely also say that it, there are similarities in your sounds and his. So I think that I would always describe it with the, warm, with the word warmth, because I think um, it happens really often, especially when you... Like, okay, in the first years you play with guitarists and you do rock music, everyone puts the amp super loud. And then you have this <laughs> yeah. destroying high frequencies as well and everything is just like... and destroying your ears. And what I like about this guitar sound is that it has some something very compact, very warm, a bit more darker, but yeah. it's still powerful. It's still very crunchy and very destroyed, but it's not destroying your ears and it, I think it mm. keeps the whole music also although it's very uh, fuzzy and very destroyed it still keeps the songs clean in a way when yeah, you listen to yeah. songs for a deaf I think it's a very clean album in a way although it's a very on the other hand it's a very um, messy music and that's also what I what I like about it this yeah. two sides Yeah, and and the fun fact is that it's not even heavily distorted as much as I don't know, Slipknot guitar sound. You know, it's. Um, I think it's very much from the presence of the amps and the, working on the right frequencies and just having a unique sound more than putting a distortion up to ten, because um, it's more about the volume. I think uh, playing with the volume and the drive a little bit. So I think that also helps to keep it a bit more compressed the the way the guitar is sounding but not overpowering and yeah and, and it's really hard to find out what josh does with his, his guitar sound because he's very secretive about what it, yeah the equipment he uses and the pedals and the amps he seems from from the stuff i read and watch he seems to use a lot of odd combinations so for example using a guitar plugged into a bass amp to get a specific sound. I think in Songs for the Deaf, he did that in some songs. Um, and just using also odd guitars, like guitars which are not very technically fantastic, but then he makes it work. I think a guy that does a similar thing to his equipment is Jack White, also using a lot of strange 
uh, equipment, which at the end sounds very unique. And I really like that. I admire that a lot. He also has a very dark guitar sound, not so... Yeah, also with a lot of body and warmth in it, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And I've been leaning to admire those those sorts of guitarists lately. I, I enjoy it, experimenting with the weird sounds. As much as I think my guitar sound is still fairly conventional, uh, but that I think also comes with experience. The more you do it, the more you, you go for a unique sound. Yeah, and I think that opens the topic of something you already mentioned before of how difficult it must be to work with Josh Homme. <laughs> <laughs> he seems a bit of a controversial figure, right? Yeah, yeah. He's clearly the band leader, and I think the, the most outspoken of, of the band. He really is the guy taking the stage. Um, but I think he already had difficulties, like the, the, the bassist guy from Songs from the Deaf, the bald guy, right? Uh, Nick Oliveri, I think his name. They fought, I think, in, right after that album, if I'm not wrong, and then he fired the guy. And I think he's a very conflictive person. So, I don't know. Do you have someone in your band who's like that, Philip? Uh, just one. <laughs> <laughs> What I think about those topics, it, sometimes I'm. It's hard for me to. Um, I mean, of course, with you know, with those famous people, you have to be careful because you you never really know the truth because you can never talk personally to the bassist or to Josh. You know, you just hear everything through, um, filtered through many channels. So, to really figure out what goes on in a person really is sometimes hard, and I can. Sometimes I'm scared, you know, like maybe would I also have the potential, you know, could it also be when I'm famous that I have like very specific ideas of things and then get a lot of fights with people, but actually I'm very nice, but just the others are strange. You never know. But um, to put this beside, I, I definitely think that he is, um, um, as I said, a strong character and has a very strong opinion. And I think um, yeah, he's also a producer and what what i what we also figured out that he also played drums in the band um eagles of death metal was it the name mm -hmm. yeah yeah so i think he has a very good overall picture um the same with dave grohl and i think when you have that the more you know about everything the more difficult i can imagine it is to play in a band and also to give response away and trust in others and not always trying to to get what you want everything in i think it can be very very difficult um the more you know um so i think that that would be a bit the reason for this and but i can also imagine that he's a very sensitive emotional guy because i also heard that he was once strongly depressive i think in 2010 yeah it seems to have been right before the album like clockwork which was very influenced by this 
a whole. I think he was bedridden for three months due to some sort of infection, and then he, yeah, he was in a bad place in those years, apparently. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's that. There's a lot coming together, and um, yeah, those fights and bands. I don't know. They they sometimes seem from the outside very hard, but you never know what really happens. Um, I think it's normal to to get into conflicts, and we we know that. I mean. It's it's part of the game, right? To yeah, to come to the spot where you have very different opinions, um, but then you have to find a solution. That's the reason why you are a band, and that's also why like the band is is, uh, is a nice thing because um, although you have to adjust things and you have to make compromises, you you have this experiment experience together, and that's that's always the the fun part of it. So. Um, No, for sure. In any relationship, you have this that sort of thing, right? It's normal dealing with conflicts. Yeah. Do you have some one of those in your bands? No, I have someone who doesn't like conflicts in in my band. Oh, those are <laughs> those are even worse. I think they are very. Oh very, my god, oh, they are the worst. No, but but one thing that every time I read about when I think of Queens of the Stone Age and I read about Josh Holmes specifically. I I have mixed feelings because in a way I really admire him and I think he's a fantastic artist. He you know he's able j just from the body of work, not 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 alone of course the rest of the band also. As I said, the current formation I think is really seems to be stable and they're all I mean crazy musicians. It's unbelievable. Mm. Um, but with him particularly, I have a, a hard time because as much as I respect. Privacy and I think your personal lives are, you know, they they they're important to you only, you know, whatever. If Josh Holm is not a vegetarian or if he votes for George Bush, whatever, it's his choice, right? And it's important to be willing to respect differences. But uh, there are some aspects of his personality that are. I always have the, that problem if if i don't connect that much with the artist behind the the art you know with the musician behind the music i usually don't buy it 100 and that's what i feel with josh i don't know i don't know why i think some things of sometimes being too aggressive there has there have been those situations where he i think there was a concert in i don't remember when when he kicked a, a photographer's camera onto her face And then he was making up some random excuses afterwards, but then came to, okay, I did it indeed, you know. This kinds of, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of people who act like that. I, I enjoy more people who are straightforward and honest. And I'm not saying he's not honest, huh? maybe. If he ever he listens to this, Josh, I'm not saying you're not honest. <laughs> but I just somehow don't connect very much to him. I connect a lot with his music, but not to him. So, yeah. I'm not sure if you have the same. We we talked a little bit about this during the new regime episode in in episode two, but yeah, yeah I'm yeah, curious I, to know. If I you immediately need to think about the new regime. Um, we mm. talked a lot about that that we loved about Elon that he's not just a great musician but also a very nice guy, very humble and very grounded, professional. And I have this issue a lot. With with mm. many with many like I think a very good example for me is always Michael Jackson because I know so many people who are just like looking up to him and like yeah he's the god of 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 pop and he's 
like everyone is respecting him and when i see this um the story that there's someone who's like like he who's a black guy and who's famous has so much influence and like making operations to be white i think that's one of the worst like messages in this world that we that you can spread yeah. and yeah. for me i cannot i have a very hard time to separate those things mostly when i um, when the personalities are very rough and not nice then i cannot just put it aside and say yeah but the music i mean you have to see it apart from it uh, just just the music is is good i'm it's connected with me i for me it's very hard sometimes to respect because I, somehow i think the music is connected with the artist for me it's a very it's not separate things for me so i mostly want to want to respect the whole package And that also, of course, sometimes gives me a hard time because sometimes you also have bands you really love and then you also see them doing shitty things, you know. Also, when I see Matthew Bellamy smashing many guitars, on, I mean, of course, it's show, it's, it's rock music, but sometimes <laughs> yeah. I'm also like, ah, oh, come on, ah, oh, that is also a bit crazy. But yeah, I think everyone can decide how he wants to separate this. But I definitely can't. I also have a hard time with those things. And I remember with Josh, I also bought a live DVD in 2005. And it, I think it was very traumatizing for me to watch this as a 14-year-old. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I don't know, because I everything was so dark and 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 he was so saying a lot of bad words on stage like always saying words like fuck and and bland you he, he seemed very angry all the time mm -hmm. and for me it was a bit like oh mm -hmm. uh, i don't know um although i was also very impressed by the music of course but uh that was an that was an interesting awkward experience i would say my first <laughs> live dvd this should be the name of the episode to attract clicks uh, uh how I got traumatized by watching a Queens of the Stone Age concert. But I, I can really picture that. A young Philip, so educated, so nice. And then, oh my God, he's saying bad words all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also remember that he was throwing something in the audience. I don't know. In my, um, probably I remember it wrong, but it looked like a, um, like a golf, um, what's the name? Like a putter. Is the word kutta or a wedge like those yeah go, yeah and he was just throwing it into the audience i think maybe it was something else but i was like super shocked when i saw it like wow. how can you do okay. this throw something I into the audience but i think it was something else maybe i can give yeah. you the dvd if you have a yeah. dvd player uh, i don't know where <laughs> i'm going to watch it because i don't have any any place in my home with a with a space for a cd input but <laughs> i'll i'll i want to check it for sure What was the year? You remember? Uh, 2005. The five. album came out, and I think in one Damn, day later. 15 years ago. Crazy. Yeah, over, over the years and through the woods. That's the. It's also the only live album they have. That's a super nice name. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but this whole discussion of separating the art from the artist, I think it's very contemporary. Especially lately... I think it was last year that this documentary about Michael Jackson came out and then, the, you know, talking again about, oh, was he a pedophile or not and all this. I Yeah, I it's hard for me. I think there is one aspect of it which is 
um, the justice aspect of it, the fairness in it, yes. Mm. But um, I think both of us have this thing that I, at the end of the day, if you're making, we're all humans, right? And it's the, it's hard for me to disconnect the human side of things from the arts, which, which is still, uh, I think, 100% a human thing, making art, right? Exactly, yeah. So, but I still admire the guy. I think I I understand that he's just a very different personality. You know, it's not the kind of persona I would strive to be, but um, still his art is fantastic and I still like listening to it. And I would love, I never watched a concert, never been to a Queens of the Stone Age concert, but I would, it's one of the concerts I definitely want to check soonish yeah. when we can all go to concerts again. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And another figure, then this is, this is a figure I connect way more with, which is Dave Grohl. And he, I think Songs for the Deaf is so legendary also because of Dave Grohl there. The, his drum, overpowered drum, and I don't know, blasting the shit out of the, the drum kit. And also touring with them, right? So that must have been legendary, watching Queens of the Stone Age with Dave Grohl on the drums. Yeah, I I mean we talked about Eric Eric Valentine who um who was talking a lot about the recordings for Song for Death. I mean they also tried very special things there, for example recording the cymbals separately from the drum kit, which is a mm. interesting approach. Um because then usually when you record a drum set you in every microphone, there's also a lot from the from the other stuff coming in, and uh, the cymbals have more the high frequencies and drums more the lows, and then it gets all together, and then it's difficult. Then you wanna wanna uh, add something like s some more high frequencies on the snare, and then the cymbal also gets affected. Blah blah blah. So that that's um, a nice approach, and you can really hear it that it's um, made a very interesting sound on the whole album. But mm. what I found also very impressive was that Eric was talking about Dave Grohl, that he's a drummer who was who's just always doing the job, who's not like caring about yeah what's with the drum set and which sticks. He's he was just like, hey, this is the drum kit. Can you please play? And he's like, yeah, for sure. Do you have sticks? Yeah, I just have those. Yeah, no problem. And then he plays, and it sounds amazing. Um, and he also told about that he's such a consistent drummer that he has this ability to always hit the snare drum with the same approach and the same um, volume. So that many people think that there were drum samples used in the recording just to equalize everything. But... Um, it seems yeah, that's it's, not the case, right? It, it's not the case. It's just because he can play so super consistent. Um, and make like this snare sound always sounding equal and that also was very yeah i mean we we already knew that 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 dave grows a great drummer but always when i hear those stories then i and you find proof for this that he's yeah he's a beast and playing very very great i mean we we had that already this topic with playing um not just loud but also groovy and with a lot of volume and um yeah. Yeah, soon we'll have for sure an episode about the Foo Fighters and probably oh, that yes. episode will be split in 10 different episodes because I can just spend a whole day talking about them 
how much I'm a fan. Um, <laughs> but you, you mentioned Eric Valentine, and for who's listening, we Philip and I are very much into developing uh, music production skills, and Philip is particularly interested in you know, mixing and recording process and all of this. I am interested as well, but I'm uh, pretty much too stupid to get good at that. <laughs> and we watched, uh, we both watched a video on YouTube on Eric Valentine's channel where he does a breakdown of an, a song for three hours. So that's amazing. And the, the one we watched was with Death From Above, 1979. And he used the same approach for that band. And I think... The, the drums are sounding very kind of dry and also the same technique of splitting how you, you record it. I think he's a very interesting guy, like a very technical producer. The only fun fact that I realized that, that I sent you, Phil, was this interview where Josh Homme actually criticized Eric Valentine and said he didn't do the work of a producer because he gets producer credits for Songs for the Deaf. Mm. But apparently what Josh Homme says was he was, he was just helping in the beginning with recording and not exactly with producing. So, and I mean, if you look at their back catalog, Eric Valentine did not produce any other stuff they did. So I guess it didn't work out for both parties. Still, that's how I discovered his Eric Valentine guy. So valuable discovery. So producing, uh, what Josh meant is that he would have um, also helping with, with writing the songs and things or... Yeah, I think arrangements and finding sounds for it afterwards and, and closer to mixing process, editing stuff, I guess. I didn't read the whole interview. I just saw this reference on Wikipedia and, and had a look to see if it was true. But speaking of producers, I think from, from my notes, it seems that the other guy I mentioned earlier, this Chris Goss guy, seems to be one of the most relevant producers in their career. Like he produced several of their records participated in some of them, I think also singing or something, I'm not sure. And he is the guy that has been following Josh since he was playing at Caius. Okay. But it was, um, it's interesting because I always th thought that they are also more a self-producing band who's like, because Josh is a producer himself, I think he also did stuff with the Arctic Monkeys, if I remember right, or with Cooks. Really? Wow. I don't know. But I... I don't want to lean too far from the window. So, but um, yeah, I thought that he was, um, that they were more self-producing bands. I guess, ah, here in Wikipedia, it's listed that he collaborated with Arctic Monkeys, Biffy Clyro, The Strokes, Lady Gaga, Mastodon. Wow, it's a lot of people and very different as well. Uh, maybe he became a producer after, you know, after learning through the process, But yeah. um, from yeah. from what I saw, the very early albums were all produced by this Chris Goss guy. Okay. Yeah, but but it's interesting. I think the importance of producers, it's something I still kind of... I think it's valuable, but uh, because I don't have experience at all with producers, I would say. It's... Uh, I mean, I just had in, in the first songs we, had, we have out on Spotify, uh, Juan this good friend of ours who lives here in Berlin uh, produced it, but uh, it was very, It's. I mean, of course, it's not the standard classical industry vibe of a producer who goes for an album, you know? So, but I do think producers have a big impact in albums. If you check, 
in any band's career and you see who produced which album, if it's self-produced, if it's not, I think that that's clearly something that makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting experience that I also maybe want to do once in the future because I never had this. And I think also the first thing when you when you uh, form a band, I think you also always think like, ah, oh, no, I, I never want to want others touch anything. I want to do everything alone and want to want to decide everything and not, don't want to have some other songwriters or blah blah blah. But the more you 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 go through this process as a band, and the more you figure out and also watch other bands and and see videos of. Um, whatever who's producing who you probably realize that it's getting apart right also um i can imagine that also has a lot of to, uh, a lot to do with having a guideline having someone who's helping you with decisions because yeah i mean yeah. As, as we are just two people it's two people it's sometimes very hard to make decisions because it's always 50 50 um very um intense i would say And if you would have someone like a third party who would, who you could give like something and ask him what he thinks about it. I mean, that's still what we already do with good friends. And I mean, we had Adam last, uh, last episode. He's for example, a very nice guy. He, he can always give us reference and help us with, with some decisions or um, production things. So Yeah, but it's still it's a part of it which helps. But uh, yeah, I think the most valuable thing of a producer it's someone who's still hands on in the process, but uh, is in a way removed from it. Right? It's like not a part of the band. It's just involved in in the production in in a specific project. But someone who who has an external perspective on things and is not afraid of saying, "Hey, this demo sucks. You need another song because this one is not good enough." Yeah, uh, you can you can obviously question if uh, you want to listen from someone saying what kind of song you should write or not. But I think there's a lot of value in this. Yeah, which is uh, also an interesting topic, right? Um, reference in general, criticism, um, feedback, feedback. I would say, yeah, one of the. I mean, we are we are feedback addicted people, right? We we <laughs> we made clear very early that we everything we do we want to we want to ask as many people as we can and get different opinions. Um, and that's something I'm very happy with that I learned this a bit together with you through the whole Komodo Fox process that we started to get chilled with process that we have, for example, a very good friend of ours, my my cousin Max. I say the name because I know he would love to get mentioned in this podcast. <laughs> Exposure. Um, he's 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 a person who is always saying directly what he thinks and also saying negative things. And actually that's something like people like this I would usually avoid and be like oh no I don't want to but I started loving this so much to you know to find those people who where you know that you can get a lot of critics and in the end I mean you don't need to take everything one by one i mean in the end it's about asking 10 people and then you have three people saying yeah but maybe the vocal performance in this one could be better which is never the case um and then you uh, no absolutely never <laughs> <laughs> sorry that was a bad example i should have taken something super randomly like the bass performance um <clears throat> no but then you can analyze and then you see oh, okay there's something popping up and maybe that's that's something we should think about 
and I, I still think of a band as a band of course you should also do your own thing in the way because it's your band and you're doing your music and you should enjoy it but it's always good to to see if there are things you can adjust and that that's a nice process to find those people and not being scared of give it away your stuff and and let someone criticize it yeah i think it's a constant work in progress and also the way we're able to create music and put it out nowadays it's so easy and so available to anyone that um I mostly care about the criticisms, like as much as listening, as hearing back from someone saying, oh, this is what you did is amazing, I love it. Of course, that makes me happy. Um, but what I really care about is being criticized. I mean, not criticized for no reason, but criticized from the people I actually want to, like you said, Max's example, right? Someone who's not afraid of saying, okay, this is not working out for me and why. Uh, but not for the sake of just listening to the whole criticism and changing who we are because of that, but just understanding the different perspective and seeing, okay, maybe I can improve in this or that part. Yeah. But I think it's really because both of us have this work ethics of, um, which can be kind of tricky, but still thinking that a, a 10 out of 10 or a perfection is unattainable. It's never going to exist. So we're constantly trying to do something better. Like we record a live session, next one should be better and next one should be better and, and so forth. And I think that's what makes us kind of feedback addicted in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was a, I think that was a nice uh, wrap up to this episode. Yeah. I'm not sure if Queens of the Stone Age, I have the impression Josh Holm is not the kind of person who wants to hear if you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you get like a putter in your he face. He just plays it. He just has the attitude. This is my song. Play yeah. it now, man. Yeah, and maybe that's also part of why I admire him. This kind of uh, attitude—not arrogant, but just uh, very confident. He he just has this very confident vibe to him. Yeah. Oh man, now I remember a part of the the live concert. Oh, that was horrible. That he was blaming someone in the audience. I remember he was like, "This guy is a total little cock smoker." And wow. then he starts blaming like one guy in the audience. Like he was also like, yeah, this guy here with the green t-shirt, can you see them all? And then he was just blaming him. Everyone is dancing, but you are not and something. And I was, that could be me <laughs> because I'm not like the enthusiastic man. dance on cons. But I think, yeah, man, now it comes back the trauma from this DVD. <laughs> and I remember that A good was, moment to finish this episode. Uh, there was also this nice song about headache or something. Um, mm. is, is doesn't it even have the title like um, something with headache? I, but I like it in a way because it feels like um, I also sometimes have headache and maybe he is having those issues as well and then he wrote a song about it <laughs> that felt connected to this. Yeah. But yeah, anyways, to, to close this very, very unique sound. Also, what we didn't really talk about, the singing is very beautiful, especially when oh, you yeah, sing those yeah. high notes. I saw the they just brought out a live session from the from the basement mm -hmm. and they also thought man he he sings very well very nice and i think that session is from around the time of the dvd you watched i think it's from 2005 or 2007 i guess and they just kind of um, resurfaced that live session now ah really yeah because I saw a similar, from the same series, I saw one from White Stripes. And I was, man, they're back. I don't believe it. But no, the performance is from that, around that time. 
Ah, uh, really? That's interesting. I thought it's yeah. just new. No, no. No, because the formation of Queens of Stone Age in that uh, recording is different. You can see that it's another drummer. I think another bass player, maybe. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool, my man. Thank you for another chat. This was the fifth one. Probably we're going to have a break now for a month or so because we're going to move to the studio to finally record our EP. And uh, we won't have a lot of time during July to record those episodes, right? So I think five so far is good and then we're back um, in a while. Nice, nice. All right. Goodbye. Enjoy your day, I would say. That was a rhyme. Ciao. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to the whole podcast. We are very grateful that we started this new experience and excited to see where it leads us. You can find all relevant infos referenced in this episode, including songs we recommend from each band in the episode's description. We're happy to hear from you, no matter if you have questions, tips or things we could improve in our podcast. And you can get in touch with us anywhere on the interwebs, like on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, email, whatever you want. Take care and see you next time.